happening now live. We want to welcome our viewers from the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm joining you live tonight from Missoula, Montana, where I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the fabulous statewide virtual school located on the University of Montana campus. And I'm also a doctoral candidate in the teaching and learning department at the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education and Human Sciences at the University of Montana. Um, Wes Fryer is on assignment tonight, so he's been able to join us. And so I've asked my doctoral advisor and educational technology professor from the University of Montana, Dr. Martin Haraji, to join me as a special guest co-host. Good evening, Martin. Good evening, Jason. This should be fun. And how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Another beautiful day here. Excellent. Tell me a little bit about your work at the University of Montana. Well, I'm Associate Professor of Instructional Technology and Science Education in the, in the Phyllis J. Washington College of Ed. Uh, I'm also Lead Technology Reviewer for the National Science Teacher Association um, and Board Member of the NCCE, um, Northwest Council for Computers and Education. So I keep myself pretty busy following these things. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me tonight. And um, as uh, some people that watch the podcast probably know, Mark and I are, are pretty famous for bantering back and forth on, on educational technology issues. So I'm sure we'll capture some of that tonight um, as part of our back and forth on this week's educational technology news. So as usual, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, and find a link to our show notes. Uh, we oftentimes post many more article links that we have the time to get to, but if you hear something interesting that you want to follow up on, edtechsr is the place to go. So this is actually in a, a release from last week, um, but it has a lot of implications for the educational technology community. Um, the uh, COSIN um, Horizon Report was released a few weeks ago. And for those of you unaware of the Horizon Report, it's a, a regular yearly report that brings together dozens of experts from across the educational technology spectrum and attempts to look at what are short-term, medium-term, and long-term trends uh, uh, in educational technology, especially as it relates to K-12 education. Um, I have used the Horizon Report both as fodder for discussion when I have myself uh, taught either pre-service or in-service teachers related to educational technology and a lot of particularly administrators and planners, and I've even heard some policymakers utilize the Horizon Report as a means of uh, kind of looking to the immediate and, and medium and long-term future to find out what might be impacting classrooms now um, and, and in days to come. So uh, first and foremost, Martin, I'm sure you're aware of the Horizon Report? Yes. And have you used it in context of you teaching future teachers in the uh, ed tech context? Well, I, I guess when I read the Horizon Report, I tend to think of it as old news if you're in the field because basically it collects the trends. Well, sure. part of what we do is, is monitor those trends and then choose the ones that have the most traction and the most promise and then make sure that our students are aware of those things. Um, as I look through this and I, I hear a lot of the same players as uh, the past few years, a um, little more focus on the online side. Um, and I'm, I think the, the coding is kind of interesting. That's uh, something that uh, I believe is going to be important. And also there's probably going to be some significant innovation in that arena, um, including what I'll have as my geek of the week. Sure. Well, let's start with that then, because the two short-term trends that the report um, uh, highlights, and for them, short-term trends means 
uh, driving ed tech adoption in, mm-hmm. in K-12 education in the next one to two years. They cite two things. The first one was students creators and the second is coding. So let's, let's talk about coding for a second. Um, I know that, that as a, uh, a program planner that provides courses to students across Montana's high schools as part of my context as the curriculum director of the Digital Academy, we obviously have had a lot of interest both from adults and also from, um, uh, students to provide more coding instruction in context of our program. And so that's meant we now offer three courses that have a, a good core in code, including um, a computer science one course. We have a web design course and we are now teaching AP computer science. Um, of those three, the kind of computer science 101 course, uh, which teaches Python programming language happens to be our most popular course amongst the three. But obviously that's something that, that, that has been interesting in my context. Martin, what are you seeing in schools that suggest that schools are either stepping up or perhaps not catching on to this trend? Well, I think that the schools are aware of it. Part of the, the confusion might be what language, um, and then if there's hardware involved, and then is it a spin-off of robotics or is it um, in isolation of you know, uh, causing actual physical events to happen? And then I, I guess I'm, I think that there's a, a maybe a little discontinuity between coding and computer science. That there, right. There's sort of an artificial difference. Coding sounds safe. Maybe you can learn a few commands and then type them in and then your object does something, spins around, you can control it, your robot does something, lights come on. But computer science is, of course, the, you know, much more complex and more difficult and, and, um, has much greater outcome. But in reality, one is just a stepping stone to the other. And I think that, uh, so much of computer science is magic to people. They just absolutely no clue how any of this could possibly work. But if you get a little bit of code, uh, code time, it's, it's like a gateway drug. And then all of a sudden you see, oh, I think I get this. You know, I don't know how you build the, you know, like this Google Hangout that we're using. I mean, it's pretty amazing, but I could understand how you could program something or how you could make, um, the computer follow a chain of commands that allows it to, to make decisions based on input. And right. I think that that happens pretty fast, but it has to happen through the channels and, of course, the um, the rules of computing. So sometimes the teachers, I believe, are a little scared of it. Um, but the students figure it out pretty quick. And honestly, they talk about an hour of code or 10 minutes of code or, you know, anything like that. That literally I, I hate to use the example of a gateway drug, but that's what it's like. It's once you get over that that initial fear, you know, the roller coaster on the first big drop then it's fun. Right, exactly. And you mentioned hour of code, you know, minute of code, week of code, you know, all the efforts that have been uh, going on broadly in the United States to bring more coding to the classroom. And it reminds me of the fact that, you know, this does not need to be sitting down and learning the Python language or Java or any of the, the, the you know, kind of big industrial languages that I do think are important for computer science instruction at the at even the elementary, middle school, high school level, but teaching the logarithmic thinking and the process of coding, um, you know, to, to, to put together uh, solutions to solve problems, 
Uh, that's also coding. And I think that the, uh, the teacher innovation that happens, particularly at the elementary and middle school around hour of code, I think has been a really great evolution of this mm-hmm. process that it doesn't need to be super high end coding to, to do that. Um, so uh, Montana has a, a gubernatorial election. Uh, we don't generally talk about politics on the EdTech Situation Room, but there is a proposal amongst a gubernatorial candidate in Montana um, to allow coding to be considered a foreign language requirement or to meet a foreign language or world language requirement um, to graduate. Uh, any thoughts about the merits of that? Uh, personally, I I think they are different things. I mean, why why wouldn't math be a language then? You know, or maybe even chemistry, if you want to go down right. that road. Yeah. Um, but or music. I, or music. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do think that there's an importance with a, a human language um, and there's all of the cultural implications. I mean, my, my daughter is in Africa at the moment. We had a, uh, uh, a high school, I guess a junior high student from France come and stay with us this summer. Um, you know, that's not computers. It's it's people and it's relationships and it's culture, um, it's humanity. So I I understand that people may want to substitute that because there right. are some similarities. But machine language and human language to me are two distinct things, and sure. uh, I I wouldn't substitute them if there is a real reason to have a a foreign language as part of our requirements. Absolutely. And I, by the way, tend to agree. And, you know, the other piece of this is that um, I do think the United States uh, does fail its students by not pushing more languages earlier in, in the educational process. You know, we should be, you know, uh, multilingual um, in the in the way we approach the world. And in my humble opinion, that we don't uh, we, we haven't really valued that to this point um, in our educational planning. Uh, let me now focus on the other uh, short-term trend, which is students as creators. And this is where uh, Wes would have been, I think, a highlight of this evening because this is something he's been focusing on for years. But, uh, Bart, I know you have a lot of personal personal passion in this as well. Um, is this a current trend or is this now a dated trend? I think it's an amplified trend. Um, I guess what I like about it is, in some ways, the idea that that all original thoughts have been thought, all great ideas have been thunk, all inventions, you know, simple, you know, earth shattering inventions have been created. And honestly, I think the power of uh, the digital environment that we hand to students is truly allowing them to combine things in brand new ways where nobody, literally nobody has ever done that before. And there are so many new innovative devices that may have had some initial purpose on the drawing board, but then you put it in the hands of the students and they're doing things nobody ever thought about, nobody ever considered, uh, except that it was, it was open-ended. You know, it was the stack of blocks or the pile of, of sticks and stones or the, um, the blanket and the, and the sticks, um, that people built things out of or the rope or whatever. It wasn't this, uh, uh, toy that has a very definitive outcome and you right. do that and then you're done, put it on a shelf and don't break it. Um, so I do see the, the, the creation aspect to be enormously important. And if it's done completely digital, it has an infinite shelf life, infinite replica, um, uh, infinite ability to be replicated and shared globally. And with many of the, the tools online, you could hand it out 
all over the place for free 24 seven. And that again is something we've never really had the capability to do. So if you want to write uh, a dozen poems, you can put them in a book, you can put them on Amazon. Um, you can share it as a download. You can make a YouTube video. Um, it's just endless. And then each of those pieces amplifies the one before. So sure. a small idea then can become a huge idea. So I, I guess that's what I like about it. But with that comes the, the incredible responsibility of that kind of power. And that many times what you do can grow legs and run on its own. So you have to make sure it's your quality work that gets out because you may lose control of it. Right. Well, and, and I, I, I have my own example of this that I've, I've done with, with, with pre-service teachers. Um, I think I've made mentioned this in the podcast. Uh, what I, uh, the last couple of times I taught, um, uh, the ed tech um, uh, preparation course at the University of Montana, I had my students go through the process of, of, of writing and publishing a book. And uh, it was a very quick process. It was not, uh, it was speed of light sort of stuff. You know, we uh, probably could have used an editor and maybe some, some more uh, attention to things like, like, you know, the writing part of the book. But part of the point was we wanted to make sure that I could, that students could see the beginning to the end of publishing a legitimately publishing a book. And one of them we even published a print edition of. Uh, it's an official book because it has an ISBN number. It's for all practical purposes published. And that empowerment, um, I, I think is a really important part of understanding what maybe has changed in the last 20 years in regards to, uh, you know, uh, authentic audience and, uh, being able to you yourself get a wide audience very quickly. And I think that message is also pretty important, um, uh, even for very young kids to understand that, you know, there are no barriers anymore. Um, if you have access to a relatively good internet connection and even semi-decent hardware to get a, a world uh, echoing voice um, without much effort. And I think that student creation piece is an important part of that. Yeah, one of the aspects that it comes back to is is the personal passion and interest of the right. students. And to me, that's, that's wildly empowering because you may have your own, um, you know, little band, your little little area of curiosity and you might be the only person within 500 miles with that, but when you turn it global, now you could become that person or the person who, um, you know, gets involved in some pretty high level stuff because you're interested and you can make those connections, even though the, uh, the other folks you're working with or talking to might be, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away. Right. Absolutely. And I, so I've been involved in a lot of projects that, that actually happened. Well, and, and that, and, and I think that that notion that, uh, you know, uh, I, I think about you and me, Martin, maybe as, as, as early career teachers and then as undergraduates and then as high school and middle school students that we were probably clamoring for the opportunity to do things like this and the technology just wasn't mm -hmm. quite, quite there yet. And this is part of the reason why I think it's important that um, you know, that, that, that especially early career teachers that may have grown up with all these, these technologies or have access to all these pieces do think a little bit about what their absence means as well. That can give you some, some, some perspective to, you know, to push more of this technology in your classroom because, uh, you don't take it for granted is, is part mm -hmm. of the mission I would give as well. Yes, very much. So let's talk about a couple of these uh, medium and long-term ones. There's one in particular that, that I, I want to hear your thoughts on. Collaborative learning um, is a midterm trend the next three to five years. Uh, the other one is deeper learning approaches, again, the next three to five years. Um, 
I I personally think that both of these uh, are a bit on um, the buzzword side. Um, collaborative learning has really been something I think that's been a K-12 phenomenon for decades, although the technology obviously empowers a new level of that. Um, deeper learning also on the verge of being buzzword-y uh, as a concept, also similar to either of those two. Uh, catch your fancy, Martin? Well, I, on the collaborative side, I think, yes, that's true, but collaboration really does need to be defined specifically. Um, yeah. And I think there are two main aspects. One is that in a true collaboration, you're working towards a common single outcome versus what we often think of as in in collaboration, even though it's wrong, but it's mostly communication, that each right. person makes an outcome. So then the compilation right. of those outcomes is collaboration. Well, no, collaboration is one outcome. You build a car, you collaborate to build a car, not 15 different versions of that car, each with its own flavor. Um, and I believe that that's actually important because the second part is to amplify or magnify the potential of other collaborators' ideas where the sum of the parts is is much less than the whole. You know, that all these little ideas actually come together into something much greater. And I, I think a good collaboration exercise does that. And in collaboration learning, the traditional method might only be the sum of the parts, add the right. collaboration side if it's done effectively. Right. Then all of a sudden you have something that's much greater. And in fact, the sum of the parts may be almost insignificant compared to the outcome. The deeper learning, I believe, is, a, is, is pretty, um, it's a pretty cool idea. And I'm not sure, I, I, deep is a good word. I, I prefer a different word um, taken from uh, sociology, and that's thick. So maybe thicker learning, where it isn't necessarily that you're going deeper in a specific area, but overall, you have a much thicker understanding. You know more about where things came from, about their implications, maybe their symbolism, the philosophy. Um, and the reason for that, and I, I have more of a science bend than anything else, is because I ultimately want to be able to predict. You know, a lot of science is inferences. Basically, you're trying to figure out what happened based on the evidence. That's an inference. You know, it's a guess about what took place, whereas a prediction is actually guessing what will take place in the future. Ultimately, that's what we want to be able to do. But a thicker understanding then allows more predictive abilities. And to me, right. that's one of the greatest advantages of that type of knowledge. It isn't just getting it. It's being able to see into the future, to the mental modeling, which truly, I believe, is one of the advantages of being a human right now is you know, over a lot of the other critters on this planet is you can actually think not only into the future, but you can also create structures in your mind and test them before you ever move. Right. So or build anything. And, you know, and obviously, you know, a, a big technology focus uh, in that concept is that, you know, we, we as human thinkers and learners have been empowered in ways that with, could not have been imagined a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I oftentimes think about, um, I don't, I, I disagree with the notion that in a world where you can Google things, you don't need to know facts anymore, because I think that's a bit shy of what the real pattern is. But for those that have enough foundation to be able to make a, a forward motion 
through a deep or a, a, a thick learning experience, you know, being empowered to look up things at, at, at the speed of light really uh, is, is quite empowering in a way that um, is, is, is really quite stunning. And, um, you know, I obviously have a lot of interest in this right now because, um, you know, I, I have interest in the way people interact with technology, especially mobile devices and how that can empower learning. But, you know, one of the things, and this is echoes a conversation that we had off podcast today, but uh, you know, the exciting thing about, about the technologies that are available today may be that they're going to start not just becoming new, but better. That, that they're faster and more intuitive and, and, and more predictive, as, as mm -hmm. you suggested before. And I think that's going to be a big part of this process. Yeah, I agree. And then the, the last two that I thought were kind of interesting, because I, I think these are actually newer trends than, than this year's Horizon uh, report is making them out to be redesigning learning spaces and, re, and rethinking how schools work. And um, the learning spaces is the one that I think is, is, is a little more interesting. But um, obviously, you know, trying to figure out, um, uh, you know, ways to rethink school broadly is an obsessive topic by education reformers. And as I've argued much in the past, that it's not the technology becomes school, it's the technology enables schools to do things in, in a new or, or interesting way. That's it's the way I see it. Mm -hmm. uh, personalized learning is an example of this. Personalized learning is exceptionally difficult to pull off and I think is extremely labor intensive. And the way uh, we might be able to pull off more personalized learning is not that we necessarily take the human element out of it, but we can make some some things much more efficient in the way they're delivered by bringing in, you know, useful bits of technology. Um, any thoughts on the broadly schools must change technology can enable us to do so uh, movement? Well, I do think that the learning spaces is critical. I think many times yeah. we've designed them uh, for structural reasons or heat distribution yeah. <laughs> reasons or management reasons, not right. learning reasons. Um, and then when you think about the, the space, uh, I tend to look at it in terms of degrees of flexibility because every anchor, or every fixed object, whether it's a window or a door or a screen and a projector defines some of the capabilities of that room and gives the message of how that room is to be used. Um, as you know, in our, our new wing of the College of Education building, I had a lot to do with the design of those rooms. I wanted wheels on things. I wanted the tables of certain sizes. I wanted the um, instructor to be able to create the learning space for the type of lesson that they were going to teach and then have the students be able to modify it to their own personal needs. If you went in and everything's bolted down, well, who actually did that? It was probably, you know, maybe it was a contractor who bolted it down because an architect somewhere saw that this was the type of seating you should have. And it had absolutely no input from right. the, the learning side. And then I also, I wanted um, the ability for the room to change. You know, we, you notice we have screens on, on most of the walls. We have writable walls, right. power on the floors, multiple projectors. And the idea, again, uh, I kind of envisioned, you know, a, a, a professor or a teacher walking in and being confused because the room was not telling them how to use it. 
you can set it up. I always called it the default button. Yeah, you can line up everything and point towards one side and call it a traditional classroom. But in reality, that was a choice, one of many right. choices. And then I also, as I was developing that, I showed a lot of people um, different schematics of how the room could be set up. And inevitably, somebody would look at those pictures and point to one and say, that's how I want it. That's me. That's how I teach. Right. And it could have been a giant circle. It could have been a bunch of pods. It could have been, you know, a traditional layout. But I wanted to provide that service to everybody. It was a little rough at first because the janitors kept turning it back into that default mode. But now as you, when you go in, you see we are very quick to move things around. We have taken right. command of the learning spaces. Right. I think that's critical. I did notice in that Horizon video, though, that some of the, the um, furniture or, or objects to supplement the room, that, a lot of it was kind of old school. And then I started looking at the technology, and you could kind of get an era when that video was shot. But I do believe it's important not to define the space. Um, and let the or not the not have the space define the teacher or define right. what's being taught. And what's interesting about you mentioned the University of Montana uh, uh, College of Education classrooms. I'll also give a shout out to Carroll College, which is a private mm -hmm. uh, a college in Helena, Montana. It's my alma mater, as a matter of fact, where I, I did my undergraduate work. And they have what they call sandbox classrooms that mm -hmm. are are smaller scale, but a similar concept to the the College of Ed classrooms. And one of the things that, and I've, I've I've now taught in those kinds of classrooms. I have lectured in those kinds of classrooms. I have learned in those kinds of classrooms rooms and then something that 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 is also quite illustrative to me is that I've also worked as an individual in those classrooms um, and I, I like teaching in them because of exactly what you're suggesting it's easy to flow in and out of different learning modalities on um, uh, you know sometimes it's group sometimes it's 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 a lecture style sometimes it's individuals um, I, I think working in small groups is great in that environment but one of the things that was really stunning to me and this is a uh, an example, a couple years ago when I was studying for my uh, doctoral comps at the University of Montana, I spent two days before sitting down for those and I had my you know, little four by six note cards and every uh, 30 minutes or so I would stop somewhere and put the note card away and start writing out kind of an outline with citations to kind of build some mental models to recall that information based on the questions I uh, was to receive in the um, uh, that process. And I was always just so, like, I kind of entertained by the fact that I was able to go into a larger room that's in that format in the College of Education, and for 20 minutes, that was the perfect space for me as an individual. There was places to write on the walls, there was desks I could move around, um, I could pace back and forth, and then 20 minutes later, a large class uh, of, of students would come in and be able to utilize that in a hands-on classroom. And later that day, there was a lecture-style classroom. And those, in my mind, are, you know, if we want to use the the uh, you know, somewhat uh, uh, unillustrative term, 21st century classrooms, that's what a futuristic classroom should look like. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other thing I keep thinking about, and there's actually an example of this on, on, on the University of Montana campus this year, I love the concept of the airport lounge um, as, a, as a broad theme, and then also co-working spaces. Um, and for those of you that have never had the opportunity to get into an airport lounge, they're worth whatever money you could pay to get into them. They're places where, usually for perks for, for advanced travelers, and I'm definitely not an advanced traveler, but, um, you know, you go in and there's outlets all over the places, and there's TVs here, and there's desks here, and there's couches here. 
um, where it's 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 flexible depending on what you need. If you need a quiet mm-hmm. place, it's a quiet place. If you need to charge, there's a charge. If you need to work, there's a stand-up desk or a sit desk to work. Co-working spaces, which are larger city phenomenons where people can go in and rent space in a large open uh, office concept, um, either daily, monthly, or by the year. Um, I spent a lot of time last summer when I was in Seattle uh, hanging out in a co-working space because they had great internet and uh, it was a distraction. Um, and that concept of a space where you know it's 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 what you need it when you need it. I think is really something the classrooms can be working towards. Um, I know that there are some newer schools in Montana that have brought in uh, when they were building consultants to look at, you know, the classroom spaces and the flexibility. But, you know, I think that, that the notion of we may not know what we need, so we might as well underbuild as opposed to overbuild may be a useful philosophy when mm-hmm. designing learning spaces in the future. I agree. I, I tend to look at coffee shops as, as a good way to, uh, especially the, the more eclectic ones, is a good yeah. way to figure out what students may want, given that they can set up a coffee shop area how they want. Right. So how can we offer them that same utility uh, within the confines of, of our classrooms and labs? Absolutely. And in fact, many of the um, you know, uh, celebrated teachers in Montana that I've been in and around their classrooms have also figured out it's probably not one philosophy. It's, it's as many philosophies as you can pack into your classroom. Sometimes it's couches to tables, tables to desks, uh, desks to nothing. Like if you can make those transitions relatively easily, you're going to be way, way better off than if you just go with, you know, one thing over another. Well, I found it in my own observations, and I'd love to research this more, is that there are kind of three things that seem to dictate the way a space is used. And that has to do uh, with the type of task mm-hmm. that's going to take place, the complexity of the task, and the duration of the task. And if you think about it, many things we do are a combination of all of those. So just take right. yourself, for instance. If you, if I said, Jason, uh, I want you to sketch out an idea for a book that then we're going to uh, crowdsource tomorrow. You know, so what we need are, you know, a working title, chapters, and then some maybe style. And what you might do is you could probably do that standing up. You know, if we happen to be um, standing around a table, you know, you might start sketching that out. But then, you know, when as soon as you start getting to the details, you're going to want to sit down. And then you're going to start to spread out a little bit. Um, and what's happened is the complexity of the task changed. You had you were just pouring ideas on to paper so you could be in almost any position. But sometimes being active actually makes that easier. Then when you focus, OK, now I want to restrict some of my motions. Sitting down helps. Um, and then as the complexity increases, you may even want to uh, change the environment again. Um, you could imagine I need a bigger space or I need vertical walls instead of horizontal surfaces. Right. Um, and all of those pieces come into play as they're needed. Uh, so when you just de- you define a learning space or schools say, oh, everybody's going to have, you know, stand up desks or something like that. That actually doesn't work. Right. Because. It changes. It isn't, right. you know, Billy needs a stand-up desk and Susie needs a sit-down desk. It's the complexity, duration, and type of task. If you're right. drawing, you might start out drawing standing up really quick until you get to the detail. Right. In fact, you may prefer it. Um, you know, where if you were sitting, you might stand up 
And I watch kids do this. And I want to offer them whatever they need in order to make the environment a non-issue, right. make it invisible. Well, and in fact, when you say that, I, I think we actually make mistakes in other realms of educational planning around that same theme. For example, I don't think buying an iPad for every kid necessarily provides a, a, the right computing power for every task. Probably the mm -hmm. perfect the perfect classroom technology is first the one you use. I mean, obviously that that's a consideration, but you know, it's not iPads or mobile phones or laptops or Chromebooks or desktops um, or smart boards. It's it's you know, a fluid set of tools that kind of move in and out to where you can grab towards the ones that you need at the time that you need them. And, you know, the there, there's a lot of, 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 you see a lot of, of mostly blog posts related to this, but the, they're starting to become two to one classrooms where, you know, it's the, it's the classroom Chromebook plus the student's personal device, whether it's a tablet or cell phone, that really becomes the optimal learning environment. Um, the same is true about, uh, you know, the, the notion of online versus blended versus face-to-face -face learning, probably in a perfect world we have the ability to fluidly move in and out of those three concepts as opposed to saying that you know, now needs to be online and now it needs to be face-to-face. -face. And, and in reality, um, you know, much like I think students should have the choice to take a class online, for example, students should have the choice to not take a, a class online if they don't find that environment to be suitable to what they're Well, you're also are. lumping online into its own realm. What is yeah. that actually? Because yeah. there, there could be you know, myriad variations of yeah, that sort true. of delivery. Sure. Um, and I guess I see, I, I agree with that, um, with what you're saying. I think it's a little deeper. Um, yeah. And that's because you probably want to come from the task side and then look for the tools right. that support that. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of tech decisions basically drop up, you know, a Chromebook into someone's hand is, and now you have to define the curriculum by what that Chromebook is capable of doing. Right. You know, and what happened with the iPad is, well, the iPad did a whole bunch of non-traditional things. And since the teachers or the tech coordinators or the students were not ready to do the non-traditional things, they found the iPad lacking because it didn't do the traditional things as well. The word processing, you know, or spreadsheet, right. whatever. Um, but then as they learned the other pieces, which, um, you know, the iPad was actually good at. Right. They started down that road. But, you know, and meanwhile, there are many more more topics that they can address with whatever handful of technologies they're using. And so I, I always throw it back and say, what do you want to do? And we'll build out the tech to support that. And Berkeley, the dog, making an appearance in the tech situation room tonight. FedEx here. It could be my quiet cul-de-sac, which never gets any traffic, apparently, is like tonight. So um, so any other thoughts, Martin, on the Horizon Report? Um, I I appreciate that they're doing it. I think it's it's more of a, it's like a class photo. It's more of a documentation of what went on. Um, how do you follow, or how do you, like in education, who would say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch online learning and see if that's a thing? What does that actually mean? Right. And I, I guess I worry if somebody takes their leadership role from this, but it is good that they actually tried to verbalize what was going on. Right. Um, so I think in, in a lot of cases that's important. And maybe if you're a mover and shaker, this helps document that you aren't the only one doing this thing. Right.
And just for grins and giggles, I went and pulled the 2006 Horizon report. Ten years ago, this report was actually only higher ed, and they've recently expanded, well, recently, seven years ago, expanded to K-12. They also have a museum edition of, of the Horizon report. I think there's a financial division as well. But there, there are six things to watch. The one year or less with social computing and personal broadcasting. Check, check, right? Both of them mm-hmm. are incredibly important phenomenon now. Uh, the, the two to three years was the phones in their pocket was one in educational gaming. I would say one of those for sure has obviously lit up uh, the world on fire. The educational gaming component, I still think, um, which I think is distinctive in my mind from edu- from gamification, which is a different mm-hmm. phenomenon, um, that one one was a home run and one was a little more meh. And then the four to five year time to adoption um, augmented reality and enhanced visualization was one. Um, that's still, I think, um, uh, in its infancy at best. Um, and then context-aware environments and devices, also important, getting better, but still, I think, in its infancy compared to where the technology may be able to go. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, uh, that, the, the way you described it, a, a class picture of tech, um, the 2000 report, or I'm sorry, 2006 report would, would suggest that as well. So... Okay, well, moving on. Um, uh, yesterday, Elon Musk of uh, 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 tes- or Tesla fame, mm-hmm. um, building the future of cars around the world, announced that he has a, uh, a vision and a very real plan to colonize Mars. And I've only read the initial parts of, of, of the articles. It got a little in the weeds for me right away. Um, I can say that I, too, as a, uh, as a young boy, dreamed of outer space travel, and I love uh, space science fiction, that sort of thing, although uh, I will uh, make the, the open disclaimer and the caveat that I still have never seen a Star Wars movie, which is a bizarre, bizarre phenomenon that I can't really explain. But um, uh, Elon Musk, who has been impressed me as someone um, that is um, – um, a doer um, and, and, and an appropriate visionary, the fact that he's getting on board with a very uh, uh, a potentially real plan for going to Mars is kind of a big deal. So first of all, Martin, have you had a chance to, to look at Mr. Musk's plan at this point? Uh, just the, the article you linked, um, right. although his, his ideas are based on many of the ideas that have been slowly moving forward through um, NASA and astrobiology over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. He's also basing part of the reason on the, the threat of impact on right. the earth by, you know, when say an asteroid, right. um, which is something that I, I do know quite a bit about and follow. Um, and I guess I'm, I, I, I'm not sure, um, what the point the driving point is other than survival as a species. Um, is that really what it's all about? You know, the game, we, we, we understand extinction and we don't, you know, we're going to beat the extinction game. You know, what's right. uh, obviously the expense. Um, we are not necessarily taking care of this planet very well. So if you think about the fixer upper, as it was noted that Mars is, you know, at best in, you know, 500 years, it might be, you know, in an ideal situation as nice as your backyard. You know, yet, why don't we, uh, 
um, understand what's going on, you know, on this planet a little bit better. And I do think, you know, there, there's the randomness of the, the impact. Yes, there have been impacts. There's still impacts. Um, I actually collect the debris that causes those impacts. Here's one now. This is a, uh, <laughs> this is one. This is an iron meteorite. It's out of Arizona. It was part of the impact, the uh, Canon Diablo crater, or the Behringer crater, or meteor crater. Um, uh, and so I have a strong interest in those, not necessarily the impact side, but what it actually represents. And this actually is more like a, an iron asteroid or a sample of the core of the earth. Um, and the stuff does fall. Most of it goes in the ocean. Yeah, there are big ones floating around. Um, you know, there are comets, there are chunks of other planets, and it is a threat. Um, I don't think, uh, I, I, you know, I, I love the space program. I've been involved in a, quite a bit of it um, over the years, and I guess I find um, the desire to go somewhere else just simply to save ourselves um, there's a little bit of more of a shallow goal. You know, we, we have to have something to contribute when we go um, other than just brute survival. But uh, on well, the other hand, is he worried about the sun burning out in, in 4 billion years? What are we going to do then? We're going to have to go to a whole nother solar system somewhere. Right. Yeah. And fortunately we will not be around for, for such dire <laughs> circumstances. Be around. You're going to live forever. Yeah, um, why not? Well, and one of the points that the article we link to in um, the show notes, which again, edtechsr.com, mm -hmm. uh, is the uh, a blog post from Slate's Future Tense blog. And um, it mentions that one of the interesting phenomenons about this is the fact that Elon Musk um, has had a real impact on the, the international space program because he's been able to commercially introduce an inexpensive and, and relatively viable way to get more uh, travel to space mm -hmm. and back for payloads. Uh, soon he's going to be shuttling folks for the International Space Station. That's a, an important part of, of the lure here is that when someone who is an entrepreneur or visionary jumps into the space, it's probably more likely to happen than to expect a publicly funded effort to do this. And so that's where, and I, and I also happen to think that um, you know, in the same way that the space program has provided endless amounts of technological advancements um, outside the space program, that the person that's also working on, you know, uh, amazing batteries, it's also working on driverless cars, it's mm -hmm. also working on electric cars, for his mind to be now pushing more innovation in space is probably going to also help out planet Earth as well, not from the, you know, exit stage left notion, but you know, there are ways that we can perhaps improve how technology allows us to interact with our environment here on Earth. Well, it, honestly, it does date back to uh, Kennedy's um, yep. initial moon race where he, yep. you know, a lot of people say, you know, or focus on the going to the moon, but he said we do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Yep. Where if you create the challenge, so by addressing these massive problems, I mean, I, I believe Musk, I don't know if it was in this article, one that I was reading, uh, he thought he could do it for about $200,000 yep. a person. Article. Yep. Okay. Uh, so that's five people per million dollars. You know, and a million dollars when you're talking space is dropping the bucket. Yep. Um, for five people. But then it, it opens up a lot of other questions. You know, that's, that's a one way trip, first of all. You know, right. one way ticket. Um, there are the ethical implications there, uh, might be like Australia, you know, who, who actually do we want saving us? You know, I can start out with, uh, the reckless 
rich people? Are you going to draw straws and, you know, the money gets paid up front and then we choose who goes? You know, what is the contribution? Um, right. What's, what is the point is kind of what I'm getting at. It's, it's yeah. focus on the technology becomes the easy part. Right. And then what? Yeah, um, but I, I I love watching this stuff because it's a it's a classic reaction that that it seems the the wealthy tech folks end up in. I mean Jeff Bezos, uh, Naveen John, um, uh, obviously Elon Musk. Um, I don't know if Bill Gates has dabbled in it. Um, you know the whole Google SpaceX. I mean there seems to be like the final frontier if you're if you're able to really push the limits on this planet in your field that's the next one. What right. is your Absolutely. contribution to getting off the planet? Right. Well, and I think that's, um, you know, and that I think those questions are probably going to be where a lot of this process now goes. And I'm, you know, and I, I'm, I, as a nerd and a, you know, dreamer of galaxies far, far away, um, that, you know, these are the kinds of, of, of folks that are going to push these discussions. I don't, um, as much as I would like a publicly funded space program, I think it's the folks that are doing this work that are going to ultimately push these discussions to a more forward progress. So, yeah, I'm, I'm great. I'm happy for them. I'm excited. You know, maybe yep. I'll think about going there. Right. Um, well, and 200K, I mean, like you said, the, the kind of five for a million model is, is a drop in the bucket. 200K is also, I mean, I don't want to be too dismissive of that amount of money, but you know, that's a, a, a retirement egg, for example. But if you are really, really bent on going to Mars, it would not be, you know, that far out of a scenario for someone uh, firmly in America's middle class to save up $200,000 in a lifetime to get to Mars, right? Yeah, or sell and, the house you, you've got and there's exactly, your money. Exactly, However, right? it's probably like a, a supercar in some ways. You know, you could look at a brand new Ferrari or something and think it's only $200,000. Well, there's a little bit that goes with that. Right. It isn't just that cost. Yep. It's arriving to that cost and then being able to continue. You know, that's right. just the, yeah. that's just the bus ticket. You know, yeah, going yeah. to Europe, your thousand dollar ticket. Well, what are you going to do when you're there? I don't know. I'm broke. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so how are you going to drink, you know, or get, buy the good street food in the big yeah, cities? Exactly. exactly. That, yeah, that's an interesting component. So uh, let's talk about one other article tonight, and then we'll get to our Geeks of the Week. Um, obviously, it's pretty hard to uh, ignore. Uh, there is a presidential election going on um, in, in, in coming weeks. Um, I don't really know who the candidates are, but uh, they're apparently some, some lady and some guy. Uh, but there was a big debate on Monday night, uh, the most watched presidential debate in history, um, there was some hand wringing last week about, uh, you know, would Monday Night Football, uh, uh, you know, hurt the debate uh, uh, coverage um, and the debate participation of, of audiences. And as it turns out, Monday Night Football had about 10 million viewers, um, and the debate had well over 80 million viewers. So it was really no competition. Um, the reason why I mentioned this, and there's a couple articles there. First, obviously, setting the record is interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, they do go into some details about where people are watching, and I would have presumed that network television was not was not going to be the dominant factor. But as it turns out, NBC, uh, the main broadcast network, NBC, um, is not a um, or was the, the winner that night of the most viewers um, of, of any individual network. But what's really interesting to me is two things. First, I watched the debate on Twitter, 
Um, I was not expecting to watch it on Twitter. I probably would have used a C-SPAN YouTube feed or got it directly off of YouTube because I happen to trust that technology mm-hmm. uh, in context of my Wi-Fi network. But um, I, I couldn't find it, so I went to debate.twitter.com, and they were broadcasting the debate, right? It was a, a, a broadcast there. It was easy. Didn't need to buffer at any point. It was pretty robust. But also, um, Twitter notes that um, – um, I'm sorry, on Twitter, the articles we, we, we pulled there that tens of millions of interactions on Facebook um, uh, were um, uh, noted that night. And, of course, you know, Facebook now has a live video component where you can just press a button on a mobile phone or on your desktop and broadcast live. Mm-hmm. There were tons of broadcasts of that debate in different contexts via Facebook. Uh, organizations like the New York Times before and after the debate had excellent coverage via Facebook. That's a new phenomenon. And then, of course, it was the most tweeted uh, presidential debate in history at a time where Twitter continues to you know, face the question of what's the future of that particular technology. That suggests that everyone's getting on Twitter and expressing their either pleasure or distaste for uh, Mrs. Clinton or Mr. Trump that it's still a viable technology. Um, so first and foremost, Mark, I know you watched the debate. How did you watch the debate on Monday? Uh, I think we used a Facebook uh, link. Yep. That's how we got into it. I started out just listening on NPR, but then uh, um, Trump was was sniffling so much, I thought, I really need to see some of this. Um, and then uh, I decided that uh, after I started watching it, that this is probably like NASCAR, that you're you're not that interested in what they're saying. It's pretty shallow stuff. You're kind of waiting for the wreck. Right, right. <laughs> for, for something to happen, and you want to be there. So I, I assume that most people watched it for entertainment value. Right. Um, they weren't that interested in what, um, whether or not a, their mind was going to be changed. Um, more right. that they just wanted to see see the action. You know that these two people have got a history, and and to watch uh, watch the fireworks. And there were some, you know. Yeah. And I think maybe there were issues that led people to, you know, kind of wonder about their their choice. But in reality, I do think that there was a lot of a, a lot of back and forth that just basically showed poor communication skills. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> I, just, the other, I had the other I, I, it just let me down, I guess, if I really was interested in something because we couldn't get there. Right. Well, and then so our did you did you engage in any social media that night? Um Facebook no, I, I don't Twitter. touch the stuff. It's I let that <laughs> I let it resonate for a while and sure. You know, but uh, I I think that's a big component. I do believe that a lot of people were probably double and triple screening and yeah, wanting to add their input. You know, following along with some of the the interactive polling at the moment. Right. Um, I, that that that's more the the reality show aspect of it. Does it matter? Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and it's funny you should mention triple screen because now that I think about it, I was triple screening it. I did have two screens that I was using. Um, one of them was uh, was the the uh, Twitter um, broadcast of the debate, and then my Facebook feed was hilarious on Monday night. Like it really was a, a, a work of art with uh, the kind of live reaction to the debate back and forth. But I was also regularly flipping back and forth to. I happened to read the 538 Politics blog mm-hmm. by Nate Silver and his crew, and they were live blogging that night, and their their commentary was excellent. It was better than anything else I heard because this research staff gets politics, and they also do a great job of data journalism. And 
as it turns out, like that was a great like three part punch for me. And so the kind of, you know, three screen aspect of it was a part of my reality. So, yeah. um, you know, what I it, worry about though, when you now that we mentioned this, the multiple screens it has to do with how, um, to use my word, how thick your, your attention is on what's happening in this process. You know, are you waiting for those zingers? It's like a Comedy Central, and you want the you want the laugh, right? You know, but then yep. if you ask somebody two minutes ago or two minutes later, what just happened? Is I don't know, but it was funny. Um, so I guess I worry that sometimes we're we're turning this too much into entertainment, right? And looking for you know points for our candidate, you know, or zingers, or you know that that one you know Dan Quayle moment or something. Um, and to me, that that does kind of cheapen the whole process. Right. Um, but I don't know if I'd watch it if that wasn't there. So. Right. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That's a good point. So, well, and you don't you don't own a television, right? No. Yeah. And I think that's um, I mean, I we have a television. It's hooked up to a couple of devices. It's not on cable or anything. And especially on, on nights like this, I'd much rather, I'm sorry, nights like debate night, I'd much yeah. rather utilize a device than, um, you know, than, than a television. I feel like it gives me more power to control the way that works. And I think that's a, I mean, certainly a sign of the times, but, you know, it's where I think entertainment's going. So I do think there is power um, in, um, in the, the after debate performances by a lot of um, uh, often comedy hosts. Right. That will actually mash up things, so you can see. Uh, I, I saw one of every time Donald Trump was um, was sniffling. Yeah, um, and you know what's the what's the point of that? Well, it's it was kind of interesting because that's what actually caused me to want to see what was happening versus just listen. Um, and then other times they'll juxtapose what somebody's saying. Right. Uh, you know, they they say this at this point in the debate, and then that. At, yeah, another another uh, point, um, or being able to go through it piece by piece with the fact checkers afterwards. Right. Here's what on. Here's what you saw. You know, so they're dissecting it. It's a, I mean, the amount of time it takes is phenomenal to be able to right. do that. Right. But in, or to compare it to old debates, or right. compare it to other speeches that they've had, and now we're starting to really thicken this this pudding of information. Right. Um, well, in fact, now that you mentioned that, something kind of amazing did happen on Monday night. The fact that that Hillary Clinton encouraged viewers to go to a live fact checking on her website. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's unprecedented. Right. Like I have a staff that's work that's doing a second screen for you. Go to HillaryClinton.com and check out the work that they're doing. And then she she gave some shout outs to that team in the rest of the debate. That's, again, unprecedented. Did you go to that right? site, though? No, I didn't. Okay, I did right when she said that. And? Um, well, there were a couple of, it was like, Donald Trump said this, and it's not true. <laughs> okay, you know, and maybe there was like not a true. link. Yeah, yeah, hashtag not true. You yeah, know, or this isn't quite right, or here's a link to some story that would, puts that in perspective, and it's like, right. you know, there's a debate going on, and you just sent me somewhere else. So, you know, it's right. like... I should be able to turn it off, go there, you know, and follow along, which so she was actually trying to do in real time what I believe has to happen later. Right. Yeah. Um, because as, if, if you're discussing, discussing a discussion, you're not engaged in the discussion, the, the, the one you're discussing. Instead, you're engaged in, um, I mean, in the one you're watching, instead that you're engaged in your component of it. 
So right. I imagine there was some pretty thin watching. You know, they don't know. They just tried to come up with their own one-liners or pointing out things or yelling at the TV that somebody's lying or I can't stand this. And they're not listening. Right. You know, or thinking about the implications until afterwards. And then as the people go in and dissect it, then there's like, really, you know, or what are these implications about what this person said or, um, or what wasn't said that could have been at that point. Right. You know, and so I think this, this next debate is going to be, uh, maybe a lot more interesting. I think this one didn't quite have the, the shock and awe that people were expecting. Yeah. And you know, it's now, now the two Rocky and Apollo have already had a couple of bouts. So they, <laughs> they know what's going on and now they're going to come out swinging. Right. Right. Um, unfortunately, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, okay. Well, we're um, coming up close to the top of the hour. It's gone quickly tonight. Um, and this is our tradition. We're going to do the geeks of the week. Martin, why don't you start up with sharing your geek of the week? Well, my geek of the week um, is the TI innovator hub and what this thing is i don't know if you can see there's a reflection um is basically a box it's like a uh kind of like a raspberry pi or a Arduino or something on steroids and it's commercial product that texas instruments makes uh they just released well i don't know if they just released it or it's if it's released yet um, I just got this in the mail today. I got contacted by TI to see if I wanted to take one of these out for a spin. Um, and it's programmable um, with uh, a calculator. This is a TI-84 uh, plus CE. And basically, you can make it do things. Uh, you can have it um, be sensitive to light. You can make it blink. You can make it um, uh, produce no different kinds of noises. Very simple interface, so um, they actually have kind of what they call a, a 10 minutes of code. I, th I noticed you didn't include that as you were talking about hour of code and minute of code. There's actually a you know 10 minutes of code for this, and what this actually is designed for is to be a simple but powerful and scalable interface that allows you to practice coding, um, sending commands to it, and then changing those commands, and then having those commands be related, like in a bright light, it makes louder noise, you know, and figuring out the logical pathway to explain that in the programming language. Um, so I, I think it's interesting, interesting that TI is going in that direction. Um, and I, I wish them the best. And there are so many people already using the different calculators, you know, that this is just, uh, they're building their own peripheral line now on top of the calculator. Um, so that's my geek of the week. I think it's a, um, it's got a lot of potential, very well made. Um, I love that they're going, they're actually showing you what it looks like on the inside. Takes yeah, I like that too. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I look at that thing pretty close. It's, yeah, that's really cool. Anyway, but I do think uh, um, you're probably going to see more competition now because it's basically circuit board and battery and interface uh, ports. Why not? Absolutely great. Thank you. That's really interesting. I mean, a big web, web, a larger web presence for um, coding and for um, uh, kind of sharing ideas, what to do with the thing. So, yeah. and the thing I've always been impressed about Texas Instrument, right? They've stayed extremely relevant in classrooms for thirty years now, and um, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a company that that can say that with the the, the veracity of of the good folks at Texas Instrument. So, mm -hmm. excellent. Yes. 
But sure. So I, I would like to share a podcast that I've been very interested in listening to lately. It's called Flash Forward, flashforwardpod.com. And the reason why I was turned on to this is that I had to give my weekly shout out to the Note to Self podcast uh, at WNYC, which is a, a, a go-to for me every week, one of the, the great things I listen to. But um, a couple weeks ago, there was an excellent episode um, that featured the host of the Flash Forward podcast talking about a world where everything you do is recorded um, like, which is something the technology that's actually available right now. And what does that mean? And what are the implications of that? Very interesting, uh, very featured looking. But the Flash Forward podcast is a podcast that uh, kind of you know, supposes a scenario in the future and talks about what that particularly means. And so to give you an example of some of the interesting things that they've considered, um, you know, what happens in the future if a tablet replaces a teacher? Um, what happens in the future if all pets are gone? What happens in the future if antibiotics uh, are able to take out all um, all germs. And I've only listened to about a, 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 an episode of half of the podcast, partly because it's really intensive, right? Like you start to get your mind going mm-hmm. and it, it starts to become kind of building upon itself. But what I love about those kinds of, 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 of kind of future looking pieces is that, um, it, you know, in the same way that the 20 years ago, you need to me- bend your mind a little bit to think about how the smartphone, which hadn't even been invented yet, um, you know, was going to really impact the way we have to teach and learn um, and the engagement with information and one another. I think this podcast does a really excellent job of, of kind of pushing your mind a little bit to think about um, how that how that process may work and how your engagement as a teacher may ultimately be impacted by that. And if, especially if you're an early career teacher, um, your like the classroom's going to change pretty dramatically for you. I think in in the forty or fifty years that you're in the classroom. Um, and so, you know, if you'd like to be challenged a little bit, if you'd like to think a little bit outside the box or into the future, um, the, the fast forward uh, podcast is, I'm sorry, flash forward podcast is super excellent and be worthy of um, your listen. So that is at uh, uh, flashforward uh, flashforwardpod.com. So uh, this is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. This is the end of episode number 23. We broadcast almost every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, um, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, 7 p.m. Pacific. We always broadcast on our YouTube channel now. You can go to edtechsr.com to get access to that or find us on Twitter at edtechsr. Uh, Martin, tell people where they can find you on the internets. Well, I... Let's see. I try to hide most of the time, but um, you can find my uh, my blog posts with NSTA at the NS the National Science Teachers Association blog under either uh, Science 2.0 or tech or um, Technology Recommends. Um, obviously, you can find me uh, within the University of Montana system. Um, and any specific questions, I use uh, TechCandy at Gmail dot com. That's uh, T E C H. C and I, as in curriculum and instruction. Um, Great. Thank you, Martin. And I've got Twitter and uh, et cetera, but I don't do that much with it anymore. It's old school. It is really old school. It's like 10 <laughs> years old now. So, uh, Well, Disney might buy it, so I don't know. <laughs> 
Um, and my name, of course, is Jason Neifer. I am at Tech Savvy Teach um, on the Twitters. I'm also available uh, at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org, where we're about to announce an excellent event in uh, spring in Portland, Oregon. Um, the uh, NCC Google Summit will be a really great um, uh, uh, second edition of that event this year. Details coming out um, at ncc.org. And, of course, um, you can find me um, uh, 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 broadcasting every Wednesday uh, with usually Dr. Wesley Fryer. So thank you for listening tonight. Um, Dr. Horatio, thank you for joining us thank as you, our guest host, host. And we hope to see you again soon. So everyone have a great night.